Well, good morning, and thank you to our music team, and really um, to everyone who serves. You know, one of, the, one of the privileges and one of the really neat things about being part of a small body of Christ is everyone has to serve. Christian life is not a spectator sport. It's a family serving together. And, I mean, there's just so much. I, I know I say this every time I get up here, but I just can't help it. There's so many people that serve in so many ways. Um, here's one small example. Our children are even serving. Things you don't even think about. So Lindsay, who's playing on the piano, she comes early to play with the music team. And Katie and Lizzie and Adam help with Sophie. Just taking care of her, watching her as they're here in the church while the music team is practicing. Right? That's service. Our children are even, are even learning to serve. So if you're part of this family, if you're part of Community Bible Church, I know you're serving in some way. And um, I always like to recognize our guys that are doing the sound. I'm one of those that... Um, that Connor mentioned, to be named among those that have a cold. I've got the cold. And I woke up this morning, and praise God, I had my voice. And I know Pat was sweating a little bit. He said, you know, he was thinking, okay, if Doug calls at 8 o'clock, whispering in the phone, what am I going to do? Um, but thank the Lord and praise the Lord um, that I have my voice for this morning. And I have some, and, I, and it's been so neat. I think Matt mentioned this a few weeks ago, is the neat thing about the preach team is the guys have time um, more than just one week, but time to be studying God's Word in a particular passage. And boy, has God just done some work in my life and in my own heart. And I praise Him for that. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. We continue our study in the, in the book of Luke. If you're visiting with us, we're in Luke. Luke's purpose, he says, in the very chapter, chapter 1, is to strengthen our faith. He says that he writes these things that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so he's there to strengthen our faith. And that's really why we get together on Sundays. It's why we get together on Wednesdays. It's why we get together on Tuesdays and Thursdays. The ladies get together, the men get together. All the times is to strengthen one another in our faith. Paul, in writing to Timothy, says all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And those are not works that earn us favor for God. Those are works, those good works are works that God works in us through His power, the power of the Holy Spirit, for His glory. Our geographical context for this morning is the Mount of Olives. Don't know what you know about the Mount of Olives. But the Mount of Olives is a prominent hill lying on the east side of the old city of Jerusalem, on the opposite side of the Kidron Valley. So what's separating Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives is the Kidron Valley. And the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives are known as Gethsemane. And the word means olive press. Boy, is that appropriate for our message. Um, today. But the area was covered by olive groves in the time of Jesus, and it provided really a frequent uh, retreat for Jesus and his disciples, a time where he, frequent, where he frequented um, to pray and be with his disciples. 
our historical context for our study this morning. It was the time of the Passover, and we've been spending several weeks in this. It, um, the cel- it's an annual celebration of the Passover for the nation of Israel. This is a big deal. I mean, it beyond Christmas, beyond what we you know, try to think about the biggest you know, annual celebration that we celebrate, um, this is big time. And Jesus enters into Jerusalem, what we know as the triumphal entry, during, during Nisan 11, the very time when the Passover lamb is to be selected. Only three days later, um, in Nisan 14, when all of those lambs, all of those unblemished lambs were, be, were to be sacrificed. You imagine all that's going on when the Lamb of God is sacrificed on that same day. It's an amazing, it's an amazing event, an amazing thing. So as we come to our text, Jesus has just celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples in the city of Jerusalem. And he's instituted the Lord's Supper as a celebration of the new covenant. And that's the covenant of grace. It's a covenant based upon the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now Jesus has been telling and is telling his disciples that he must suffer and die. But you know, that really doesn't fit into their expectations of the Messiah and him ushering in his kingdom. They think that Rome is the obstacle to the kingdom of God. And the real obstacle is sin. And you cannot have a kingdom without the cross. And so that is where Christ is headed. So our, pa- so our passages today and this morning brings us to Christ leaving that city of Jerusalem following the Passover meal with 11 of his disciples and going through the Kidron Valley and up to the Mount of Olives. This passage is one that's very familiar to us. If you've been a believer for any length of time, um, you know um, this passage. But without question, the agony of Christ's prayer goes beyond anything we could possibly imagine because Jesus is not just facing death. He's facing the full weight, the full weight of God's judgment for your sin and for mine. And yet, in this passage, there's an exhortation that Christ gives to his disciples that Jesus repeats twice. And this is the lesson that I think we most often overlook. I know it is true in my own life as I was studying this passage. I thought, wow, Christ repeated this twice and so often I've overlooked that. But once again, Jesus is always, always teaching his disciples. All the way to the cross, he's teaching them. And being just a stone's throw from his disciples, they're able to witness the agony as he prays to his heavenly Father. Now, before we read read the text, um, let me just share two things. You know, I always like to ask him, after I've been up here and I've preached maybe that evening or the day after, I'll say, hey, Kim, what was the main point of my message? And she's like on the spot, right? She's like, "Uh, well, let's see. And so I'm going to give you kind of the main points, the main thoughts, uh, two two main thoughts, and then we're going to look at the passage. And hopefully you'll see that. Hopefully as we read through that, it'll be easier for you to see. Two main thoughts. Here's one. As a child of God, prayer is a necessary and therefore frequent part of our relationship with God. And when prayer is a habit of the heart, it's the first place, hear me on this, 
It's the first place we go when faced with the trials of life. Jesus knows exactly what lies ahead for him. And he knows what lies ahead for his disciples. And twice, as we read this passage, listen to this, twice Jesus will say, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Every trial in life, we're faced with one or two options. We can either yield to the temptation to satisfy our own fleshly desires. We can act in unbelief or we can yield to the will of our Heavenly Father, our Sovereign God, in faith and trust. That faith and that trust is in a person. It's in the person of God. It's in the promises of God accomplished through the power of God. Remember, our faith is not an empty faith. It's in the person of God, in the promises that He makes, and He has the power. He is a promise keeper. So Jesus teaches His disciples to approach every trial and every temptation of life with prayer and submission. Pray and submit. All right? That's the first one. The second point I want you to come away with after we read this passage is that we can be confident that Jesus Christ took on the full penalty of our sin. There is no other way. He asked. There is no other way. Nothing could be added to and nothing could be taken away. <clears throat> what Christ has done on the cross. You with me on that? Okay, I asked you tomorrow, or someone asked you, what were the main points? Pray that you not enter temptation during trials, right? And there's no other way. That's all I got to remember, those two things. Okay, and I'll, and I'll feel like, hey, Kim was listening. <laughs> so before we read this text, let's pray. Can we do that? Can we pray? Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, <clears throat> I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts that we might understand the truth of your word. And give me the humility and the courage to apply that word in my life each and every day. And give me clarity of thought and a clarity of voice as we proceed, as we look into your word. All right, if you turn to Luke chapter 22, we're in verse 39. We'll read verses 39 through 46. Um, the same, um, this, the, the other gospel writers provide um, some, uh, some other eyewitness or, or expert witness, in this case, if you're Luke, but other witness uh, to this event, Matthew and Matthew 26. If you're taking notes, you just don't want to reference Matthew 26 and Mark 14. We don't have time to read those, um, but you can um, look at those this week in some of your time together. Um, as you go over this message. But let's read um, uh, Luke um, chapter 22, starting in verse 39. <clears throat> and he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them 
about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthened him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Observation, lesson number one. Again, Luke says, and he came out and he went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, I think this was a place they would come to often. He said to them, pray, pray that you may not enter temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed. Here's the lesson. For the child of God, prayer is a necessary and therefore frequent part of our relationship with God. Prayer should be, it should be, if you are a believer in the person of Jesus Christ, prayer should be a habit of your heart. If your relationship with Christ is a growing relationship, your prayer life should be a growing part of that relationship. God is a relational being. He exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we were created in God's image. Therefore, we are relational beings. We relate to one of, by God's design, communication is a, a vital part of every relationship. And God speaks to us through His Word. But we have an opportunity to pour out our hearts to Him because of what Christ has done. We can approach the very throne of God in prayer. And I would suggest that no relationship survives or grows without communication. That's why the enemy of your soul and the enemy of my soul wants to isolate you from God and from your brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, think about, think about marriage. Okay, Raven and Peyton, our newlyweds are here um, this week. Congratulations, you guys. Um, smiles on their face. We all know, boy, have they got a lot to learn. And, and one of those things, and I know they, I know they already know this because they're in a relationship, right? Now they're in a marriage relationship, but it's communication. And when you think about, you know, when you think about the, a quality marriage comes when there's quantity and quality in communication, right? And what's the first thing that happens when there's conflict? Communication stops. Nothing gets resolved. Communication is critical. And prayer is our opportunity to pour out our hearts to God and communicate to Him. And reading God's Word is God communicating to us. So important in the life of a believer. Jesus had a place where He liked to go and pray to His Father. It says, and he, it says as was His custom. Prayer was an integral part of Christ's life. I mean, we've been, we've been going through the whole book of Luke. And I won't cover all of them, but just, just to touch on a few of those. 
In Luke 5, 16, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray, describing Christ. Luke 6, after, after Jesus calls his disciples, it says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, all night he continued in prayer to God. Luke 9, in Luke 9, um, Peter's confession of Christ as the Messiah. Now it happened that as, as, as he, that is Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? The Transfiguration, Luke 9. Now about eight days after, after these saints, he took with him Peter and John and James and John and went up to the mountain to pray. Luke 11. The disciples see this habit and are like, teach us to pray. We had what? Five weeks, six weeks for our preach team, each assigned a portion of that prayer. And we went through that prayer. Father, Jesus taught them that intimate, that personal relationship with God. Father, hallowed be your name. Recognition of the holiness of God. Praise and worship. That's where it starts. A cry out to our Father and praising Him and worshiping Him. Your kingdom come. That's where we align our priorities with His priorities. We submit to God. We have to do that every day. Every day we have to wake up. Not my will, but thine. Thy kingdom come. Not my kingdom. I'm thinking a lot about my kingdom. Thy kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And then we acknowledge our dependence upon God. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. Confession. If we're walking in the light of God's Word, it's going to expose sin. Confession should be a part of our prayer life. And lead us not into temptation. The battle cry. Don't lead me to a place where I would fall into sin. Don't test me beyond I'm able. Jesus says, pray that you not enter into temptation. Part of that very prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Pray. Luke 18, the parable of the widow. And he told them a parable to the fact that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Not lose heart, that means endure. Put that word, write that word down right now in your mind. We're going to see that. Because, because the trials that we face are going to lead to endurance. And every one of us that's in a trial, endurance is what comes out of that. So for a disciple of Christ, prayer should be a habit of the heart. It's a necessary part of the Christian life. It's a habit that produces endurance through the trials and the tests of life. Let me ask you this. Is prayer a regular part of your daily life? Where's your Mount of Olives? Do you have a Mount of Olives? You got a place where you like to go and just pour out your heart to Christ? Parents, are you teaching your children to pray? I know you are. Kim and I have the elementary age kids. Man, you ought to hear them pray. My favorite part of that whole class is when we just go and, and get prayer requests and they pray. I love hearing those children pray. And I know God does. You know, in our family, we had the green, <clears throat> the green ottoman. 
the green ottoman. You remember that, Cameron? So that, you know, that's very out of style now. It was a green leather ottoman and a green leather couch. And when we finally got rid of that set, I hated getting rid of that ottoman because it was big. I mean, it was, I mean, it was big enough for six people to get around, and we all got on our knees and prayed. Now, it wasn't this thing that you might imagine, this, oh, the Wilmans are praying, you know, and the kids, all the little kids are just on their knees and praying. Cameron would climb up on my back. I mean, he was probably age of uh, um, Monroe. Yeah, probably Monroe's age. He'd climb up on my back. You know, it was a you know, comfortable place for him to be. We were praying. You know, he'd just get, climb up on my back. The kids, you know, and, and always this, oh, it's a terrible time. Do I, do I, you know, there's always something else to do. But that ottoman was the place where we pray. Do you have a place like that? Do you have a place where you like to go and pour out your heart to the Lord? Paul tells the, Paul tells the Thess- the, those in Thessalonica, he said, Rejoice always, 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's God's will that we pray in all circumstances, and with thanksgiving. The Philippians, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And then the promise and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so it should be in our relationship with our heavenly Father. And then Luke tells us, and when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Lesson number two. When faced with the trials of life, both great and small, right? Both great and small. Our first response, our first response should be to pray. Pray that we not enter into temptation, the temptation to yield to our flesh. Could be a small trial. Could be somebody cutting me off while I'm driving down the road. What's the temptation? Angry, bitter, maybe say something I shouldn't say, right? Those are small temptations. And then there's, and, and those are, I'm sorry, that's a, yeah, that's a small temptation in a trial, a simple little trial like that. And then there are great trials that we face in life. Think of Job. Think of Job's attitude and think of his wife's, and think of what his wife said. His wife yielded to the temptation to act in unbelief. Curse God and die, she said. Job said, no. So we accept the good from God and not, and not the bad. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job praised God. Job praised God. That is the choice. That is the choice. So when faced with the trials of life, both great and small, our first response should be to pray. Pray that we not enter into temptation. Um, In our lesson a couple weeks ago, Dave Wolf was preaching, and Dave, Dave said this. He said, our faith, our trust, Our faith and trust is not really tested until our desires come into conflict with God's desires. Jesus says, not my will, but thy will. And then last week, you were here last week, 
And James was saying, God is sovereign in every trial of life. Every trial, every test, both great and small, leaves us with one of two choices. Either trust in our own devices, satisfy our own fleshly desires outside of God's revealed will, that's sin, or trust in God's provision and submit to His will. That's walking by faith. Again, faith in what? Faith in the person of God. Faith in the promises of God. Knowing that He will accomplish all that by His power. Is there a greater power? No. So we're going to, have, we're going to do some Bible turning here really quick. Okay, three passages I want you to look at. If you guys picked up an outline, those three passages are listed there. Um, also, um, Hunter, if you, can, if you guys can put up that slide um, for me. Great. I've got that here so I don't have to look back. But here's just a real brief and short, two definitions, all right? So trials. What are trials? The trials are those unwelcome circumstances, really, that come from living in a broken world, those unwelcome circumstances that come into conflict with our natural desires, okay? Our natural desires are okay. That's the way God has made us. We're human. And Christ had those. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I gave, I gave an example up here. Thirst. It could be hunger. It could be anything. Thirst, a lack of water, that conflicts with my natural desire for water. Could be hunger, be food, right? The desire for food. Jesus, when he was first tempted in, in, in Luke 4, the temptation, 40 days without food. Do you, you not think that was a trial? Most of us complain about going six hours without food. It could be that. It could be, it could be sexual desires. Those are natural. Those are, those are part of who we are as created beings. All of those, the, the, the trials are when those unwelcome circumstances come into conflict with our natural desires. The temptation is the enticement by Satan or by our sin nature to respond to the trial in disobedience to God's will. If it's thirst, the temptation is to steal water from my neighbor's well. Right? Now I put in that definition an enticement by Satan or by sin nature. Satan is not omnipresent. He cannot be everyone. So most of your temptations, if not all of your temptations, come from your sin nature. But Jesus had no sin nature. He was tempted by Satan. But he was fully man. He, was, he had all the natural desires that you're born with, and Satan tempted him. Just as your sin nature tempts you, Jesus was tempted also in all things, but he was tempted by Satan. If you look at the chart up here, our natural desires, that's not sin. It's not sin to have the natural desires that we have. The trials in life that we face test our faith. And the temptation is either to yield to our fleshly desires, to our sinful lusts. That's unbelief. That's just not trusting in God, to yield to that. Or, and I have the diagram going the other way, or to submit to God's will. That's faith. That's saying God will provide. God is able. I'm trusting in Him. And what does that produce? You'll see that as we read some of these passages. James, um, um, James Wolf. I say James, I sometimes I know you guys are thinking about the book of James. But James Wolf in his message last week um, um, alluded to these same passages, so we'll look a little bit, a little bit more at them. Um, but it produces endurance. And that endurance is to God's 
glory. All right, so turn, if you will, in your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Towards the end, Hebrews, James, John. James chapter 1. And we're going to begin in verse 1. Oh, we'll pick up in verse 2. So James introduces himself, okay, in verse 1. In James, in James um, chapter 1, verse 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Our trials come to us in both frequency and in variety, okay? And James says to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, steadfastness. That's the big picture. The only reason you can count it all joy is if you have knowledge. You have to know what God's purpose is in the trials. You can't just be so overcome by the trials that you can't see the big picture. You have to keep the main thing, the main thing. And you're going to see that when we're going to look, go look at Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. It's the same way. Peter brings out the big picture first. You have to, Sometimes we can't see the forest for the trees because of the trials that we face. But the writers are always encouraging us, giving us that high altitude view of what God is doing in our lives. And let, and let steadfastness or let endurance have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Remember, trials and testing have purpose. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Pray. That's what asking God is, prayer. If you like, you know, a lot of times we talk about asking for wisdom, praying for wisdom. Here it is in its context. Its context is pray for wisdom as you're facing the trials of life. First thing you should do, right? It's the first thing you should do. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. That's a promise. There's a promise Talk about the person of God, the promises of God, the power of God. There's a promise and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith. You got to ask in faith in the person of God, the promises of God, which will be accomplished by the power of God with no doubting. No unbelief, no doubting. For the one who doubts, the one who acts in unbelief is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in his ways. He's not anchored in the rock. But the lowly brother boasts in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also is the rich man. Fade, fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Empty pursuits, pursuing those things that are not eternal, have no value. Blessed is, James goes on to say, blessed is the man who remains steadfast. There's that endurance, who endures under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Big picture, we're back to big picture. Which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You know, as you look at the chart up here, the natural desires, that, that, those aren't, there's nothing wrong with those natural desires that we have. That's not sin. The temptation itself is not a sin. But when we yield to the temptation to satisfy our flesh, that's when James says, desire is con- it's conceived and gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And so you see up here, when we submit to our fleshly desires and act in unbelief, it gives birth to sin, which James said, says, leads to death. Turn, if you will, to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, um, verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse, um, verse 6. Paul says to the Corinthians, now these things, now just to bring you into context, these things are the idolatrous actions of Israel while wandering in the desert. So he describes those and he says, now these things took place as examples for us. Here's a good reason to read your Old Testament. All right. These things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And, 20, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must, must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. They were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, when you see therefore when you're reading scripture, you know, that's like the that's like the fireworks going. Okay, pay attention. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands, that is pride, take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, right? This is based on the character of God, not you. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. That's a promise. There's a promise. We talk about our faith, the person of God, the promises of God by the power of God. It's his faithfulness by his power, by his faithfulness. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's the goal. And you know what our endurance does? I see people here who have endured great trials. I see you here. You point to the sufficiency of God, of Christ. That's what it, when I see you, that's what I think of. God is sufficient. I think, how could I have ever bear something like that? And yet when I see you and I look into your eyes, I see God's faithfulness. 1 Peter chapter 1. One last passage. Please turn to 1 Peter um, chapter 1. 
First Peter 1. Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. Now let me, let me, just, let me interrupt this and say this. We're, we're picking up in verse 3, 1 Peter 1, 3. But let's look at 6 first. Look at 6 because then I'm going to back up to make my point. In this you rejoice. So whatever I'm going to say in verse 3, 4, and 5, he's saying in this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So what does Peter do? I mentioned this before. Big picture. Big, he starts with the big picture. The main thing. Keeping the main thing. The main thing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by the power of God are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What could be greater than that, Peter says? What could possibly be, how, what could possibly distract you from that? And so he gives us that. And then he acknowledges, in this we rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Our trials do grieve us. We have emotions. They do hurt. Christ prayed in agony. There are those emotions. And then Peter goes on to say, so that the test, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's the end goal. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe, that's faith, you believe in Him, and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Continue with me in verse 10, 1 Peter chapter 1.10, verse 10. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating that he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. See that? Again, another good reason to read your Old Testament. The prophets were prophesying about the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were, that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, Things into which angels long to look. Therefore, there's therefore, every passage we've read, right? There's that therefore, therefore, preparing your minds for actions and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's where we set, when we go through the trials of life, that's where we set our minds. And as obedient children, now this is the exhortation, don't fall, don't enter into temptation. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. 
That is, that is yield to the will of God. Be holy. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter says we should not be disoriented by the temporary trials of life. Keep the main thing, the main thing. God is sovereign and he is omnipotent, all powerful. He is doing a work in our lives that results in the praise and the glory of Jesus Christ. And every trial we face, great or small, strengthens our faith as God displays his faithfulness in carrying us through to the end. And then Luke goes on to say, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed. And I think here, he literally gives the example of what he's been encouraging them to do because he's facing the greatest trial that could be imagined. He knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you were willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's the number three. Jesus has shared our experience in every trial, and he shows us how to respond when faced with the trials of life. And what is that response? Prayer and submission. He prays, and he says to his Father, not my will, but your will be done. You know, we're most familiar with the temptations that Christ faced from our study of Luke 4, the temptations of Christ. But Jesus, being both fully God and fully man, in his humanity, he experienced many trials and temptations. Though Jesus was born without a sin nature, and that's the necessity of the virgin birth, he was born without a sin nature, he still had all the physical and emotional desires that we have. And he was tempted by Satan as we are tempted by our flesh to satisfy those desires apart from the will of God. You know, too, too often, I, I can say this, too often in my, in my uh, when I think about the person of Christ, I'm so wanting to defend the deity of Christ, right? And in, in, in that, I, I, and just in studying this, in studying this passage, it's just highlight from my mind, oh, he's fully man too. I, I think I, 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 I underestimate that he, his humanity. I understand, I underestimate. You know, you think how Jesus is God, he's going to the cross, you know, I mean, I, you know, I mean, he can handle it, he's God, I'm not, right? Well, he was fully man, fully God and fully man. He suffered through these trials like we suffer. And I have a, I have a hard time sometimes wrapping my head around that. You know, just in, 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 in we're, in, we're in Luke 22 and verse 28. Um, in verse 28, Jesus was speaking to his disciples. He said, you were those who have stayed with me in my trials. You know, I think Satan was dogging Jesus every step of the way in his ministry. We tend to think of the trials of Christ as just being the temptations that he faced um, in, the de- in the wilderness. I think Satan dogged him every step he took in his, on his way to the cross. Listen, all Satan needed, when God created Adam, right? And he created him perfect. He created him without sin. And all Satan needed was for Adam to to do one thing. And he would plunge all of humanity into sin. Just disobey God once. 
That's all Adam had to do, and he did it. And Satan's like, victory. And the second Adam comes along, and Satan's thinking, all I got to do is trip him up once. Just once. And our hope is gone. Just once. There is no trial, temptation that we face that's not already been experienced by Christ. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to a lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And we are the offspring of Abraham by faith. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen? Amen. Since then, we have a great high priest, Hebrews chapter 4, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast, hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted and tested as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That's prayer. How do, you draw, how do you draw close to the throne of grace? In prayer. Therefore, let us draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace for help in time of need. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Jesus knows our every weakness, and he stands ready and able to pour out his mercy and grace in our time of need. Our response to trials, follow the example of Jesus Christ. Pray. First thing, pray. Pray that we don't enter into temptation. Ask for wisdom, James said. Ask for wisdom. Peter says, draw near. Or the writer of Hebrews says, draw near to the throne of grace. Pray. Pray as Jesus prayed. And then submit. Not my will, but thy will be done. And endure. As Christ endured the cross. Every trial and temptation that we face is one that's been shared by Christ himself. We are to follow his example. And then Luke goes on, and we're, and we're drawing to an, ear, to an end here, and to the lessons that we're learning. In 41, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, Luke says. And being in agony, and some of you know that agony, 
He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. You know, there's no way to imagine the agony that Jesus felt that he experienced in his prayer. But there are some of you that are closer to it than I have been. I know Kim and I, in 40 years of marriage, I know in our life in raising four kids, there have been those times, nothing near what some of you have experienced. I can remember when Kinsley was in the intensive care, in intensive care unit on a respirator. And the neat thing is there's a prayer room. You go to the children's hospital, there's a prayer room there. You need it. It's the first place you go. And yet just being there and seeing the other children that were there, we thought we, thought we were the blessed ones. I mean, we're, like, we're, not, we're not suffering. And sitting among you right now, our brothers and sisters in Christ, who can strengthen you like the angels strengthen Jesus because they've been in some places that you can't imagine. It hurts me to think about it. And so I have a hard time saying it. I see Terry and Bonnie over there. I see Bonnie smiling. She is always smiling. Bonnie is always smiling. And yet when when Cameron was three years old, Daniel was three or four, about the same age. Is that right, Bonnie? And they're not the only ones. Kim and Tom, John Michael. I think of, I see Bill, and I think of, I think of his family. I think of the trial, the test in that family. There's an agony. There's agony in those trials. And we, we can be confident that Jesus can come alongside because He knows that agony. Luke says this in Acts, Peter and John are before the council of the religious leaders. Oh, I'm sorry. I got one head step ahead of myself. And so Jesus asks in his agony, he says, really, he says, is there another way? Is there another way? And the answer is, there's no other way. There is no other way. God told Adam, if you sin, you die. That's the penalty for sin, period. Paul reminds us in Romans, the wages of sin is death. There is no other way. God is just and God is holy. And there is no other way. 
Peter and John, as they're before the council. Peter says, and there, is, and there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other way. John 14, 6, Jesus himself says this, says to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way. Jesus will go to the cross single-minded. Now he comes up from the prayer. He goes to the cross single-minded because there's no other way for man to be reconciled. And for that reason, he goes and he suffers. And with this single-minded result, with this single Mind, with minded resolve, he will endure what's coming. He will endure what's coming. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping for sorrow. I think they're finally getting an idea that this, is, this kingdom's not coming like we thought. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. What was the first point? Pray. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. For the child of God, prayer is a necessary and frequent part of our relationship with God. And when prayer is a habit of our heart, it becomes the first place we go when we're faced with trials, both great and small. Two choices we have, either yield to the flesh or yield to God's Spirit. And Jesus teaches His disciples to pray and submit. And secondly, we can be confident that Jesus Christ took upon himself the full penalty of our sin. There's no other way. Simply no other way. Nothing can be added to or taken away from what Christ has done on the cross. If you're here today and you're not a believer in the person of Jesus Christ, if you're not trusting in his death as a substitution for you, and your sin, let me just tell you this, there's no other way. There is no other way. For those of us who have put our faith and our trust in the person of Jesus Christ and His work on the cross, we are to be encouraged and we are to rejoice. The writer of Hebrews again in Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and I mentioned some of those witnesses even here among us, Right? So great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which entangles, which, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, big picture, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand, of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. Let me close with the words from a song that our kids have been singing 
And one that, man, just after going through this passage and studying God's word, just so more, more and more dear to me. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Oh, yes, daily. Some great, some small. Is there trouble anywhere? We live in a broken world. Jesus, Savior, is our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Oh, what a friend. Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. Blessed Savior, you have promised all our burdens you will bear. May we ever, Lord, be bringing all to you in earnest prayer. Soon in glory, bright unclouded. Now we're seeing the picture, right? This is the big picture. This is how we can rejoice when there are trials. Soon in the glory, bright unclouded, face to face will be our prayer. Joyful praise and endless worship will be our sweet portion. 